Your treasure store will open of itself and you will use it at will. This sashin at this time of year, is my voice loud enough? This sashin at this time of year is um, always for the Buddha. So this is the one of the most important times of year for um, people who really like Shakyamuni Buddha, our hero. <laughs> this time of year is the time we celebrate his awakening. We also have a big party to celebrate the birth of Shakyamuni Buddha and a big celebration honoring the Parinirvana when Buddha <coughs> passed away. And sometimes, in some traditions, these are all done at the same time, and then it's a huge ceremony. And in Mahayana, we tend to space them out. So we get to have three parties. I guess it's a kind of greed or something. <laughs> we have three parties. But this one, the honor, in honor of the Buddha's awakening, is just an amazing time for us because the teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha is that it's the same. We're the same. There is no difference. And the awakening of Shakyamuni Buddha was to that. He said, I and all beings together attain the way. So Shakyamuni Buddha, as Reverend Sayrin uh, mentioned in his talk last Sunday, um, Shakyamuni Buddha woke up, looked at the morning star, which we saw last night. Reverend Gyozan pointed out um, uh, Venus. I thought so. Yeah, so Venus, Shakyamuni at the same time, exactly the same time, only four centuries ago, as our Kokyo said this morning. <laughs> it was actually 25 centuries ago, more. 2,500 years ago, Shakyamuni Buddha, after studying with many teachers, but significantly five, um, five who taught him everything they knew and uh, all the techniques, all the mental techniques and practices and ascetic efforts. They taught him everything, and he knew everything about how to practice. And all of them wanted him to follow them, each one of them, and become their disciple and then carry on their way. And in his heart, he wasn't settled, so he kept practicing. And then uh, he practiced to the edge of uh, death, actually. He stopped taking food. He did everything wholeheartedly. And then as he was about to expire, and there are many representations of this. There are statues of the Buddha with all of his ribs showing and emaciated face. Um, because he made such extreme effort. And then he was collapsed by the side of the road, and a goat girl saw him and thought, he's a holy man, because holy people walked around India at that time, and they still do. And she saw the holy man and saw that he was hardly moving, hardly breathing. He was going to expire. And she didn't want the holy man to expire. So she got some rice and some milk and made a rice milk drink for him. And she brought it to him 
And he thought, I'm not sure what he thought, but since we have the same mind, I will say what I would have thought (laughs) was, oh, that smells so delicious. And he took a sip, and he took some more, and realized that it wasn't the way to die. Maybe because he just hadn't, didn't feel that he'd awakened. Maybe because we often say that's when he realized the middle path. Not too ascetic, not too indulgent, but this precious, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. Take care of this body. So he drank that and continued on his path and then decided to just sit under the tree, under a big tree. Trees are still very holy for us and for all beings. Sat under a tree with the protection of the tree, with the protection of snakes. Snakes came to protect him during this um, last effort. Big cobra arched over him and protected him. He had all sorts of protectors during that last effort. And we say it's seven days but we can say it's five days. He sat for some time and was visited by countless thoughts, which at the time, they there's a difference in the Western mind and the mind of uh, liberation, the mind of maybe the East, the mind of liberation. We tend to think it's inside. It's all our feelings and our demons. In the East, he was comfortable thinking it was the armies of Mara coming to tempt him and provide all these cultural temptations and uh, doubts. Many, many self-doubts came to torment the Buddha. And then he saw through them. He sat through them. And the final earth-shattering night was when uh, the armies of Mara came with that final challenge who do you, who do you think you are to be awake who do you think do you think you deserve great awakening the ultimate doubt you don't deserve it you you don't have the mind of buddha you don't deserve it and so he reached down and he touched the earth to witness everything he'd done and everything that had um, supported him all the reasons. He reached down and touched the earth, and the earth gave a great shake. And then he woke up. The earth witnessed that, yes, all, everything shows you are the same. You are us. You deserve it. And then he sat there for a while um, because, probably because it felt really good, also because he didn't think that it could be explained or transmitted. Nobody would understand this. This is beyond words. This is the boundless um, feeling, boundless experience of non-separation with all things and all beings, and that they also are of this exact same nature, which we now call Buddha nature, awakened nature. He saw everybody was already completely complete. There's nothing to teach. And then um, those five most recent traveling companions of his came because they, they thought they heard about it. And so they came, and they asked him to teach. And that's when he thought he would start teaching. 
So from that day for another um, 45 years or so, he taught continuously. And what did he teach? So the reason we're chanting Fukan Zazengi is that Dogen Zenji is in the direct line of people who understood what he was trying to share. And this Fukan Zazengi is about that original experience and about experiencing that mind and also um, the mind that doesn't experience it. So this first paragraph is about that. But it's possible to read this. I think probably um, maybe many of us have read it over the years, and we kind of get bogged down, it's possible, in the center, because it's about, well, you should put your left foot on your right leg, and your right, or is it the right leg on your left leg, right foot? We get bogged down. And then you should put the tongue against the front roof of your mouth. So it looks like it's just um, an expedient teaching about how to sit and what to do and how to be a good Zen Buddhist. It does contain that, but it's wrapped in this other understanding, the transmission outside of words and phrases. And uh, Dogen Zenji says about this that it's his attempt to put into words the mindless, the mind-to-mind transmission, his attempt to use words. So, Shakyamuni Buddha woke up, and then he... We say he taught, and then he also gave the transmission in ways outside of words. So one of the beautiful stories is about Shakyamuni Buddha in a big crowd, because he traveled all over India, and there were big crowds coming. But certain of his disciples followed him all the time, and one was Mahakishapa, the foremost among those who followed the the rule. He was very good at um, discipline practice. And Chakimuni Buddha picked up a flower and he held it up in the assembly and then in the back Mahakashapa saw Buddha twirling this flower around and Mahakashapa smiled. And that was the mind-to-mind transmission. Can you imagine Shakyamuni Buddha twirling a flower? Wouldn't it make you smile? He's so liberated. He's sitting there with a crowd of people who want to hear what he has to say, and he's twirling a flower. That's <laughs> the ultimate teaching. And so Makashapa smiled, and Shakyamuni Buddha said, um, Makashapa has the true eye, the true eye, of uh, dharma, mind-to-mind, recognition. And then Mahakashapa had students and lots of people in India followed and understood. And then Bodhidharma and others went to China and mind-to-mind transmission happened. And this is very important to Mahayana Buddhists. We like these... We like to... We like to remember the names of those who woke up. We like it. We, it's not so much that there's this only one, only a few people woke up. It's that if we can, let's remember all their names. We like that. And so, in 
1,200 years after the Buddha's time, Dogen Zenji was born. And he was very sincere. And he, his mother died when he was eight. And he, he says that he saw the incense rising at his mother's funeral, and he, he realized deeply the importance of impermanence. Not just loss, loss and grief, yes, but also impermanence. It's all like this. All of it is changing all the time. So he realized that at eight, and ordained because his understanding was that his mother wanted him to be going to a monastery. And then uh, when he was a little older, around in his 20s, he decided to go to China because he wasn't content with what he was learning in Japan. So he went to China, met some teachers, wrote stories about it, and then he met his teacher, Ru Jing. And with Ru Jing, he experienced this, his mind awakening. And he describes, he calls that mind and body dropped off. <coughs> so we can say, just boundless, just boundless. All the boundary lines around mind and body dropped off. And so then he decided he needed to come back to Japan and share this. So something about there, I'm sure that there are a lot of awakened... In fact, we have a name for awakened ones who don't teach. We have In the scriptures, it's called Ikanteka Buddhas. Ikanteka Buddhas. So there, there are awakened beings in our teachings, and they don't teach. But people, awakened ones like Shakyamuni Buddha and old Buddha Dogen Zenji, they... They find their, they want to figure out ways to understand, to share, and understand other minds. So he got back to Japan, and the first thing he wrote was Fuganza Zengi. So now you have another part of the context for Fuganza Zengi. He was trying to express this thing that he experienced in China and brought back to Japan for us. And Tim, Reverend Seiren, and I will be talking about this during our session. And we haven't coordinated our talks because this is a boundless practice. Tim will talk about Fukanza Zengi tomorrow. I will talk about it today. and Or maybe Tim will decide not to talk tomorrow, just to sit in boundless spaciousness. <laughs> Very well. Or maybe the Tenzo will do that, and then we will have no food. We'll sit in boundless spaciousness. <laughs> that brings up a good point. So, boundlessness and boundarylessness is what's being demonstrated by the awakened Buddhas, and what's being um, what would you say? what they're saying, what they're pointing to in us, that we're all in, in the nature of that. But boundarylessness really comes into, we can really work with it when we have boundaries. So we put edges in our practice. And Dogen Zenji was quite good at that because in order to really bring your mind to fulfillment, we have these edges to work with. So we have a Tenzo who puts out the food on time. And we have Zazen practice that starts on
long time. So part of what we experience in Sashin is the edges of our practice, edges that are put there to liberate you. Other edges will come up, like for instance, you might have opinions or you might notice something this way or that way. Those are edges of our practice. In the middle of your boundless experience, oh, here's an edge coming up. When we were doing Kenyan just now, my eyes were kind of going out that window over there, which is so beautiful. Everything around our spacious sloping land is beautiful. And first I was thinking that um, this slope that we get to experience has been here for centuries. There's been no change to that slope. The plants and the and the animals probably have changed, but the this gentle slope of the earth going that way and down into the creek. That's quite, quite old. But also, I saw some movement out that corner, and you know those little piles of earth that are all over? I've heard that those are worm castings. That those are all a whole bunch of little worms busy. And I'm sure I saw some worm activity as I was going out there. So I thought, maybe I'll meditate outside and keep my eyes out to watch the worms creating their little mountains. That's what Sashin is for, after all. So, I want to say also something about the boundarylessness. When we had our ceremony of Buddha's enlightenment last Sunday, we read this writing, which is kind of old and kind of new, about the Buddha. We said, on this winter morning, many centuries ago, After long and patient struggle to find the truth, a human being looked up and saw the morning star for the first time and was set completely free, laying down his heavy burden once and for all, realizing unsurpassable peace, heart opened wide as the sky, and from his mouth came forth a great lion's roar, I was, am, and will be fully awakened simultaneously with the entire universe. Thus, mountains, rivers, the great earth, and all living beings are residing in the eye of Shakyamuni Buddha, and Buddha's eye has become each of our bodies here and now, dropped off, compassionate, and joyous beyond measure. So, we are in the eye of the Buddha, and Dogen Zinji understood this, So the first paragraph that we read today, the way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from one, right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? And having it be formed as a question like that is interesting because what he's really saying is the statements about those things. He's really saying you don't need a means to brush it clean. There is no need to go off here and there to practice. He's saying that. And yet, in the next sentence, he brings us back down to earth. He says, and yet, 
If there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Those are practice instructions for us. Those are points of practice that we can actually use during session. If there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. It doesn't say don't have likes or dislikes because we're human. We experience cold and heat, hunger and thirst. We experience those things. But watch what happens to the mind. That's what they're saying. Watch the mind. Can it be lost in confusion or can it stay open when like and dislike arise? Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the, the, the mind raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. He's saying that all of the practice techniques that we indulge in, and we have many, he says, we are making the initial partial excursions about the frontier, but but our mind is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. This is saying something very important for us and Dogen Zinji will keep saying it and great teachers will keep saying it forever to us Zen students meditation is really good but Zazen is not the same as meditation so when we're doing meditation it's wonderful we're doing various noticing of practices and we're clarifying the mind and we're clearing up our karmic knots and entanglements but Zazen is the sitting in this mind of Buddha Zazen is what we're doing on the same night that Shakyamuni Buddha sat down Zazen is not worrying or um, fretting about clearing up the mind Zazen is when you sit down and you are the same as Buddha. So we, we kind of confuse these terms a lot and we use, when we say Zazen instruction, actually we're doing meditation instruction because we're not able to do Zazen instruction. Zazen is sit down or stand or walk or lie down in the mind of Buddha. It's a big request from Dogen Zenji. It's a huge request from Shakyamuni Buddha. But what they're saying to us over and over and over again is, you can do it. This is you. This is who you really are. And when we stray, we have lots of things. We have lots of techniques. We come back, check in on the posture, check in on the breathing. Put your ears over your shoulders. Put your shoulders over your hips. Let your shoulders relax back. Even take your thumbs and put them in these little hollows behind your head and lift up from your 
from your head. Feel your neck extend like a big, long Buddha neck. Let your collarbones be wide. Let your abdomen be kind of extended. Um, And it's not exactly soft. It's more like there's effort to this breathing. So it's not not relaxed like this. It's upright breathing. This way your energy is kept here with you, and there's room for your energy. I'll say more about energy next time I talk. But I also want to take us to the last paragraph today. Is that okay? You can do it again tomorrow. The last paragraph is so great. Please, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Devote your energies to a way that directly indicates the absolute. Gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddhas. Succeed to the legitimate lineage of the ancestors' samadhi. Constantly perform in such a manner, and you are assured of being a person such as they. Your treasure store will open of itself, and you will use it at will. I'm going to tell the story of the dragon, but also Dogen Zenji says, Succeed to the legitimate lineage of the ancestors' samadhi. That ancestor samadhi is what we're going to chant at lunchtime. The Jiju Samai is what he's talking about. Succeed to that samadhi. The samadhi of the self fulfilling the self. So we'll chant that and just know that um, Dogen Zenji was working with these things at the exact same time to try to express to us this inexpressible teaching. So Long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. How many of you know the story of the true dragon? Okay. Not everybody, though. Or some of you are pretending that you don't know. <laughs> this story is so great. So this is, this is about, uh, this is from the Chinese teachings, Xin. Shen, Shen Su is the one who had this experience. So Dogen Zenji brought back, of course, the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha. He also brought everything he could from China being there. So we have this incredibly rich um, Dharma world that Dogen Zenji brought back to us. So the dragon, Shen Su, really, really liked dragons. He really liked them. So he had dragon hangings, he had beautiful carved dragons, he had dragon, um, he had everything. He probably had dragon ceramics so he could eat off of and look at beautiful dragons. And there are dragons even in British um, uh, ceramics. They really like dragons. They say the Dharma will flourish in, in countries that like dragons. Our country likes dragons. Right? Game of Thrones, which I didn't watch. It was too scary. But I guess I would be afraid of the true dragon. So Shen Su really liked dragons, and he had many, many dragons around. And so one day, 
a dragon was flying over and looked down and he knew he'd heard this dragon had heard that Shinsu was really fond of dragons and had this great collection so the dragon came down and put his face next to the window and Shinsu fainted because Shinsu was taking care of the little dragons and cleaning them but when the real thing arrived he fainted so if any of you feel like fainting during Sashin, that will be fine. We'll know that the true dragon came to visit you. So during this Sashin, we're going to think about the, the rest of the teachings in Fukanzo Zengi. So I hope that you um, are able to uh, be the container. These, I know you, I don't have to hope. You are already the container for these great teachings. And I hope that all of us assist each other in um, uh, holding this beautiful practice together. One thing, one of the reasons why we have ceremonies, by the way, sometimes ceremonies are, as Tim mentioned in, in uh, his Dharma talk last Sunday, when people say ceremonies are empty, we think that's a compliment. <laughs> the emptiness means they contain everything. So we do empty ceremonies because it's hard to contain the beauty of our practice. So bowing and offering incense is a very simple way to take care of the beauty of these teachings we've received. <laughs> 